Hello and welcome to another episode of the 1020 podcast. I'm very excited that today I can introduce you to Frank Ferretti. Frank is a sociologist who worked at the University of Kent. He has published over a dozen books, is one of the most quoted sociologists uh, um, worldwide at the moment. Uh, he's a current uh, and regular contributor to intellectual magazines. He writes for Spiked Magazine, where I also occasionally have the honor to contribute as well. So he's an all-around uh, intellectual researcher, academic, and I can highly recommend his work. What I particularly enjoy about Frank's work is he seems like a figure out of a Socratic dialogue. So if he has his opinions, he has his positions, but he presents them in a very matter-of-fact and a very clear uh, argumentative fashion, which makes it both a pleasure to listen to him and also to read his work. His most recent book is The Road to Ukraine, something we're also going to talk about quite a bit in this conversation. Frank, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Nice talking to you, Ralph. So I would like to begin uh, maybe with your most recent book. Maybe you could tell us a little bit what motivated you to write it. Uh, the war in Ukraine started in February of this year. So you wrote it in a, in a, a very quickly, a very a short amount of time. And I find it one of the most insightful takes on what's currently unfolding in Eastern Europe. So maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, what your motivation was and what kind of the, the key messages that you tried to bring across. I think uh, it was an accident that I wrote the book. I never had any intention, but what happened was, when the war broke out, I went uh, into Ukraine to see for myself the situation, to understand the, the developments. And in the course of traveling around, it really hit me that what's happening in the Ukraine is so much the end product of unresolved historical problems from the European past, and that people have not simply understood that these issues are still very salient. And uh, in particular, I, I, you know, I felt that although the uh, invasion of the Ukraine by Russia is inexcusable, and I, I support uh, Ukrainian uh, independence 100%, I also felt that the West was somehow unable to understand and grasp, even contribute to the dynamic that led to this unpleasant and horrible event. And uh, I think in the course of doing that, I felt that there were a number of factors that explained this. I write a lot about what I call historical amnesia, which is the inability of Western societies to rem remember the lessons of the past and even a desire to detach themselves from their history and, and assume that the, the lessons of history are no longer important. I think this is best captured by the Fukuyama thesis of end of history, uh, which obviously is far from ending, uh, which is not being realized. But what I also felt was really quite important was that in many ways the, the uh, historical amnesia and, and the accompanying geopolitical illiteracy that paralleled it was also in many ways linked to a kind of a wider problem which I describe in the book as the moral disarmament of the West, that somehow the West has given up on its cultural legacy, its historical values. And because it has got no idea where it came from, it kind of has lost its way, which has really come out very, very strikingly in this war on Ukraine. Do you think that when you describe this historical amnesia, do you think it would be fair to say that this might have been 
partially self-inflicted, that given particularly the history of the, of the first half of the 20th century, that Europeans not only kind of took the, the, the end of history approach as a, as a, as a, preview a prediction but actually something they wanted to see fulfilled that kind of that they wanted to see themselves detached from the rough and tumble of geopolitics of history of all these things that maybe focus on the more minute details of life uh, you know when people mock the european union for example when they discuss the the the, the shape of of cucumbers or bananas that that, that actually is not a, a bug but a feature to say we focus on these things but the the storms of the world kind of the the the, the lessons of history something of the past that we no longer want to engage with. I think that's probably true. There's an impulse to escape from the past and almost to detach yourself entirely from the origins of where you come from. But there's also at the same time something even worse, which is you don't just simply write off the past. What you also do is you condemn it. And therefore what you've got is this, uh, what I call year zero history where everything that's happening in, in, in before the end of the Second World War is seen as being bad, uh, whereas now, since 1945, we've kind of become these sensitive, enlightened individuals. So you've got a kind of flattery, self-flattery, that we're not like people you know, that lived uh, in ancient Athens or in other parts of, of our human history, which has got this uh, kind of uh, negative uh, consequence that you simply are living in the present and this kind of presentism which accompanies historical amnesia has this kind of uh, limiting limiting effect on, on the vision of society because having lost the connection with the past, you're obviously not in a position to look to the future and instead you just become imprisoned in the here and now and see that as the best of all possible worlds. As a sociologist, I mean, there is, uh, we can go back to Christopher Lush, right, who wrote about narcissism. Uh, there is, uh, there are many contemporary books, particularly in combination with social media and how it affects us, kind of a self-centered culture. Um, from your perspective, from also from your experience and, and your main field of research, if you would have to describe, uh, the current state of, of, let's say, civilization in the West and maybe also within the West, when we maybe then later on compare a little bit Eastern Europe and Western Europe, kind of what would your assessment be? Do you think that it's it's uh, exaggerated or do you think that what you also just described this kind of self-centeredness and a certain arrogance towards the past, that there is maybe more truth to it than we would like to believe? I think that um, the West has lost belief in itself. The history that it teaches children and people is a, a history of shame, where everything that has gone beforehand is shameful, something to be avoided. Uh, it's given up on the most crucial of foundational values like courage, solidarity, duty, loyalty, patriotism, all those things are seen as outdated. And instead it's kind of opted for this uh, synthesis of a technocratic outlook that kind of drives it to some extent that occasionally uh, synthesizes with identity politics, which is really a very... Uh, it's, uh, identity politics has the effect of fragmenting and isolating people from one another. So Western politics today, public life, Western culture has become exceedingly uh, demoralized and uh, self-consciously avoids using a moral language. And I suppose most important of all, it's also become 
not just simply cut off from the past, but also from the future. And that's why it's become so risk averse. That's why, you know, if you look at the European Union, all that it does is it uh, regulates. You know, anything that moves, you regulate it. And you've got this precautionary principle in, in Europe that we can't really do anything that's uh, uncertain just in case some bad things will happen. Well, that risk aversion basically means that in, in, the, in, in, two, in 2022, we would never even invent aspirin because the side effects of aspirin are so considerable that they would argue in the European Union that it's just too, too risky to bring that on the market. So it is a, a very sad and very self-indulgent Western culture that we live in at the moment. And that's why I think the key issue of our time is the need to challenge that, to challenge that culture in a, in a fairly systematic fashion. I agree. I mean, I, I sometimes jokingly say if coffee would be invented today, it would probably be illegal. <laughs> and sometimes I still wonder that you can still get alcohol in supermarkets because again, if alcohol would be invented today, there's probably no chance that it would be accessible for, for anybody because as you just mentioned, because of all the, the risks. Um, if you, if you allow me, because I agree with everything you say, but, but just uh, something I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with myself in, in recent weeks, because I think what you described so, so nicely, but do you think that, that there is still a desire for those values that you described, right? Uh, duty, patriotism, courage. And the reason I'm asking is I'm so surprised that very often those, particularly in Western Europe, who would describe these values as, you know, proto-fascistic and very dangerous and kind of of a long gone uh, time, now at this very moment seem to be the most likely ones, for example, to put a little Ukrainian flag into their social media profiles. So it seems that while they reject those values and ideas in, in the Western setting, they are very excited about supporting them in this case, in the Ukrainian case. So, so it's almost as if finally they have found a, 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 a place in the world where they accept and approve of these values. And it's almost as if they vicariously live a form of, of patriotism and nationalism that they cannot have at home in the US, in France, in Germany, but they can have it on behalf, on behalf of Ukraine. So, Am I completely off there, or do, do you think that is kind of a, a, a projection or a coping mechanism for a lack of those values? I don't know. I think what you describe is true. So all these people that says we need open borders and borders are not important, obviously realize that certainly for the Ukrainians, borders are very important. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And certainly... Uh, when they see uh, uh, solidarity and loyalty and patriotism in action in the Ukraine, they have to approve that, even though themselves, in terms of their everyday life, are alienated and, and estranged from that. And I think that to some extent has got to do with the narcissistic way in which they make sense of their predicament. So uh, very often you will find that you know, it's almost as if they can get vicarious courage through Ukraine, which is why so many of these Western leaders go to Kiev to, you know, put their arms around Zelensky's shoulder and take a picture with them, because that way they too kind of can live off that. And in this way, they can do that without necessarily uh, taking those kind of values seriously in their own society. I think that uh, 
you know, the way that I see it is that the values of, of Western culture over the years, the centuries, are so important for life that you cannot just simply get rid of them altogether. You cannot turn, if you reject courage, that's one thing, but you cannot turn cowardice into a virtue. It's very difficult to do that. Um, and you can reject solidarity and duty, but you cannot turn irresponsibility into some kind of a virtue. So there is a kind of uh, what I call moral disarmament that has occurred, which means that occasionally there's a kind of recognition, a kind of uh, the light bulb shines where you say, hmm, you know, this is something that is relevant and important. And certainly or a lot of ordinary people throughout Europe in particular, also in America, uh, who haven't got a voice, you know, do understand the importance of loyalty or patriotism in terms of what it means in their terms of their own life. But obviously, they don't run museums or cultural institutions or schools or universities. Do you think what you just described, do you think one of the reasons why in, in, you know, the, the media echo chamber or, or what seems to be important, so many things that we discuss, you mentioned identity politics and, uh, uh the questions of gender and in many ways also the, the matters of, of, of climate and, and, you know, kind of the, the, the more radical proposals, how to address, uh, to address climate change. Do you think one of the reasons why this seems so, so, so omnipresent is because those who create, let's say, the cultural sphere in media, in academia, in entertainment, for them this is so important because they lack any other outlet for what you just described, these these values, kind of this idea of a sense of meaning in life, whereas for, for the majority of the people, they still have those traditional sources, be it, be it family, be it work, be it patriotism, all these elements. So do you think there's kind of almost a disconnect between a, an... Uh, an elite that is emptied, let's say, of, of meaning and and tries to find new ways and, and almost forces these new ways on people that, that are not that empty, let's put it this way. But of course, that also throws them into a status of anxiety because you're then constantly questioning yourself, well, are my, my values the right ones? Am, am I on the right path? Because all the people that supposedly know better kind of tell me that what you believe is wrong and here's what you actually uh, should believe. No, I, I agree your description. I think what you have is a kind of uh, elites in Western societies who are always looking for new values, who understand that the value statements that they draw, particularly in America, it's, a, it's a, one of those silly habits where you have a value statement. They're completely rhetorical. They're emptied of meaning. And when you look at a value statement in a American or a British university or a company, It's almost like they were written by the same person because they all, you know, value of safety, of diversity. They are not really values in a philosophical sense because they have no ethical or moral content to them. So the best example of what you described is the European Union, which recognizes that it has a legitimacy deficit. It recognizes that what it calls European values, uh, what it sees are European values, are not really anything more than administratively created values. So it's got values, number one value in, in Brussels is diversity. But diversity is a description of the many 
rather than a, a philosophical or theological or moral value. There's nothing but inherently valuable in the many diversity any more than there is in the few or in homogeneity. And yet they try to create a value out of it. Uh, and in the desperation that they kind of, you know, the way they kind of moving forward, they try to attach a value to a whole lot of different things in the hope that they're going to be able to create meaning uh, that pro can provide connection between them and the rest of the people. And that's not happening and is unlikely to happen because real values are organic to people's experiences. They're not something that you create in a seminar room or in an office, but they come out of the experiences of a community, particularly a community over centuries as they kind of evolve. Do you think that this is one reason maybe why why in some areas of public life the push for these let's call them non-values is getting like more and more intense because as you just described it since they are not real values it's kind of trying to I don't know you know nail jello to a wall so 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 no matter how many nails you use it's never going to stick to the wall but you're probably frantically going to hammer one nail after another into it in the hope that at some point it's going to stick but since it never sticks it it get like the push gets gets harder and harder and harder and you know more more extreme let's put it this way not, not so much violent extreme but but you know in in um it starts out with diversity as, as a kind of innocent term but we now have reached you know this this, this idea that it's, it's mandatory and, and you see this in all areas as well and do you think that uh, one cause could be that that as you just described it that we try or that, that institutions try to administer values which are if we take a deeper look are not values at all Yeah, I think there's this uh, impulse towards, first of all, uh, giving something a value uh, that you hope will be seen as as relevant to people's lives. And then after a few hours and a few days, you then tell people that these are values that are not uh, values that you can choose to reject, but you need to accept them, embrace them. So you then create this... Uh, quasi-dictatorial regime where you have to basically sign up to those values. I think this is this is most horrific in universities where you can now go to universities and they can tell you that these are the values that you have to accept when you become a member of our university. Now, one of the things about the university historically is that except for totalitarian societies, Universities don't tell you that this is the values you're going to believe in. They, they allow you to choose and they allow you to debate and argue about them. But the idea that you come to Oxford University and you're going to sign up to these values before you can be a, a part of that university is something that would have been unthinkable not so long ago. And the very fact that they can casually say this indicates how this uh, impulse towards uh, kind of... Uh, Imposing values in, in a kind of soft, totalitarian way has become almost institutionalized. Do you think, and, and I do this myself very often, when we talk about the West, that there are, let's call it, pockets of resistance within the West. And here I'm particularly thinking about, about Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, for example, but also Hungary is, is, is a good example. Do you think that that Maybe there, there is a, not a second pole, but, but that, that kind of the dominance of this idea. Some would call it, you know, kind of the, the, the modern liberal project, that there is growing resistance to this. On the one hand, within Europe, 
particularly uh, partially within the political scene in the US. But I think also a little bit what we saw uh, now with the, the World Cup, I don't know how close you follow football, but what right. we saw a, a little bit with the World Cup in Qatar, right, that that there is a, kind of there are nations or countries or political entities that more openly than they would have dared in the past to reject this 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 what some call the liberal project whatever then we want to call it i'm open for um you know for, for any term there and and maybe that that's true within europe as well so that the west is might that there might be a counter movement a weak one but one that might be growing yeah i i i think that there is um more importantly, I think there's a lot of potential for that. So you can you can mention East Europe, where I think these sentiments that we're discussing are relatively weak yet. I mean, they are also there, but in a much uh, more feeble form than in other parts of Europe. But even outside of it, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Italy, and where I got a little house in Lombardy, people remind me of Hungarians in terms of their attitude. Uh, they really reject a lot of the uh, kind of uh, uh, identity politics and a lot of the attempt to impose this kind of uh, conformism upon their lives. You know, for them, family, community, friendship, beauty, all these things are still very important. And there's a kind of uh, silent group of I don't want to call it silent majority, but a substantial number of people who think the way that you and I think, but have not found their voice. They haven't been able to find people who represent them and can speak for them. So I think that this is really quite important. That's why I've taken on this job of running this think tank in Brussels, because I think that if you um, challenge the prevailing uh, conformist consensus, and show another way, it's possible to perhaps galvanize other people to stand up and be counted. So I'm not pessimistic. I'm just very frustrated that I live in a world where, in a sense, um, Western civilization is busy committing slow suicide. At least uh, the elites in Western civilization have given up, and they're the ones that you know sort of are more or less betraying all the values that they're ancestors and the grandparents and great grandparents have stood for what is since you mentioned uh, the think tank in, in brussels maybe you can tell us a little bit about it kind of what what your projects are how how it uh, how you uh, kind of started to join it and uh, because i would argue correct me if i'm wrong you take some personal risk there i mean this is this is i would argue something quite courageous that you're doing so uh I'm very glad you do, but uh, th this must have been a step that probably was not, not that easy or, or took probably a lot of thought on your part. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a big family argument. Some of my family members said, are you sure you want to do this? Because you're not going to be very popular and, you know, you're going to be attacked and, and uh, denounced as a far-right fascist or whatever the, la the latest label is. And also, I didn't really need a job because I, you know, I love what I'm doing. I love my office and writing. You know, that's what I, I do best and do my lectures. But I just felt that it was very important to challenge the narrative that the European Union promotes about European values. And it was very important that uh, the culture war is taken to Brussels so that both sides are conducting it because at the moment, People that are sympathetic to my outlook or your outlook 
tend to react all the time. They're always reacting to the latest crazy thing that they hear. And I think that that's a recipe for defeat. We have got to initiate. We have got to basically indicate that these are the important issues. The way we think uh, has got to be taken seriously because our values are no less European than, than maybe yours is, probably even more European. And we need to make sure that they are given a voice and aren't put into this uh, intellectual or political quarantine. So, you know, what I, we've only been around doing this for about six weeks. And one of the things we're doing is we're basically uh, sort of always projecting an, an alternative way of making sense of the world and uh, suggesting that the, the kind of the, the values that are dismissed the kind of more traditional historical values of the West plus some of the current ones are actually very, very rele relevant to people's lives. And I've got academics working there. I've got people working there producing material, hopefully to both promote alternative policies, but also to shake things up a little bit and uh, give people uh, some, uh, some hope that there is, you know, that what they secretly think what they cannot say in public are actually important. And there are other people in the world who think the same way as they do. I mean, it seems that particularly the year 2022 might, might really be a game changer in many ways because the, the, the European or the, let's call it the Western European dream and idea that, that we are moving into this end of history world where, you know, it's a, uh, accommodation through trade and, 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 uh, Relationships are getting better. So there's this idea that in the end we enter, let's call it a, a, an entirely bourgeois world where, where material well-being, material comfort will overcome any kind of, of existential threat or perception of existential threat. And I think both the war in Ukraine, but also, of course, the looming energy crisis in Europe, it seems like a little bit a collision with reality that we are experiencing. So again, in your view, I mean, do you think it would be fair to say, there's a line that the late Donald Rumsfeld once said, right, that, that weakness is a provocation, that, that maybe Europe simply deluded itself in a way, not with necessarily bad motives, but kind of the, 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 the belief that this this almost utopian world is about to to come on was so strong that that of course it also encouraged and you know individuals like Putin or, or others to become more aggressive in their outlook. And the reason why I'm asking this is because it seems that these two competing theories in a sense like like one is that that Russia felt an existential threat. Uh, kind of the Mersheim argument. But the other one is, I think, what also you described regarding to the kind of Europe's cultural condition, that is anybody really feeling threatened by Europe? Because I think they knew in Russia, uh, you know, kind of what the, the cultural conditions in Europe are. So so I'm still trying to figure out a little bit um, um what, what not, not the truth, but but what really was going on? Like there, there's everybody has an opinion, right? But I, I still cannot really kind of kind of figure out what 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 I find the most convincing approach to this question. I think your instincts are right that this is a, a new world we're moving into because of the confluence of all these different things coming together, and I think that it's very much the case that uh, Europe, uh, the way it's behaved, uh, has been. Uh, extremely, you know, sort of uh, sad. I mean, German is the worst example. I mean, German pub public life is, is desultory. And there's a kind of, kind of uh, intellectual and political cowardice in, in Germany that must have encouraged Putin to 
invade Ukraine. You know, data, it is how they behave, you know, the strongest economy in Europe. Then we can just walk in there. They're not going to really react. And I think that that was, that was an understandable uh, sort of conclusion that he drew. He might have been wrong in the end, but that was really quite important. So you have that on the one hand. You don't have a situation where Western societies are, are making things up as they go along. There is no strategic clarity about where they're heading. I mean, uh, geopolitics has become a dirty word in the West. And under those circumstances, you create this instability, this you know, precisely at a time when you have this decomposition of what they call globalization, not the internationalization of capital, because that's still going on, but the ideology of globalization that suggested that economics trumps politics and that uh, states are no longer big players because the, it's international institutions that can deal with the global problems. And that cosmopolitan ideology beyond globalization, that's been exposed and has become really, really very weak. And that coincides with the regional breakup of the world economy, where you have more protectionism occurring and where the harmonious, so-called harmonious economic links have become exposed as potentially quite rivalrous. And we are back in a situation, I mean, they, to me, the, the present moment looks a little bit like it was before the First World War, where nobody knew who would be on what side. If you recall, I mean, Italy is meant to be on the side of Britain and America one day, next day they, they join somebody else, or with the Germans or the Austrians, and then they join America and Britain. So you got this kind of positioning occurring, uh, which then leads to this massive tragedy, the, the First World War. So that's that's the moment we're in at the moment. And uh, that's got uh, opportunities, but it's also very dangerous for that. But what, and you mentioned this, kind of what, what drives me insane in a, in a metaphorical way is that you just mentioned before, right? You know, one of the guiding, if not the guiding value in Brussels is diversity. But at the same time, when, when you proclaim the importance of the value of diversity, they always seem very surprised, or at least the, the leadership seems very surprised when they encounter that indeed there is diversity in the world and different countries, different people think differently than we do, even within the European Union. I mean, if you would truly believe in diversity, wouldn't you welcome the fact that, you know, Hungary and Poland uh, take a different approach to societal questions than, uh, than the Dutch or, or, or the Portuguese? If, if diversity would really matter, wouldn't that be something that you would welcome? Yeah, I mean, they're very selective about diversity, so they don't, they don't particularly love the diversity of ideas of different intellectual viewpoints. They like their viewpoints, and the viewpoints that challenge their viewpoints are immediately pathologized and, uh, and basically they kind of ostracize from uh, sort of society. Uh, similarly, the idea, and this is a very crazy idea because one of the strengths of Europe historically is that there are many nations in Europe with many, many national cultures and values uh, as a result of their uneven and, you know, sort of um, uneven and contradictory development. And instead of understanding that was a strength of Europe, you know, that people think differently, have different feelings, 
the European Union wants to homogenize everything. You know, and that's the irony of it, or the, the people who promote diversity at the same time want to homogenize certain things. And they don't understand that there's a paradox here that, that they kind of fundamentally contradict their proclamation of diversity as a, an important value. Uh, do you think in, in often again, I read uh, that, that, that many of these new movements and identity politics and other areas are compared to, you know, like neo-Marxists or kind of very often the comparison to, to Marxism falls. I, I'm wondering in your opinion, do you think it might resemble more of, let's say, a, a, like a secular reformation of, of a new Puritan movement? Like when, when you listen to the way they talk and in, in, in the way they present their values, that, that sounds more for me like a movement, let's say, ready to burn riches on a stake than, than, than necessarily a movement that talks about the, the, the common, the coming, uh, revolution. Because whatever one thinks about Marxists or communists, They had a certain openness, let's say, to, to technology. Uh, you know, there, there was a, there was an, an, an outlook into almost a Fukuyama-esque way that an end of history is going to come. It's going to be then the communist utopia. And, and so that it was, it, it was almost progressive in many ways, but the modern progressive movement strikes. And also, of course, the identity politics movement strikes me almost as the opposite, right? It, it's backward looking, you know, less industry, no modern agriculture, uh, indigenous populations. I, like, Indigenous ideas should be valued over modern ideas. You know, uh, no, I don't know. Um, healers are, are better than than modern medicine. These kind of ideas, right? Uh, uh, organic farming is it? So, so I sometimes wonder if this is not more a a, 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 a a reformation movement that talks about you know purifying the soul that has been tainted by modernity than than the Marxists that seem much more progressive in many ways. Well, I think you're absolutely right that they've got nothing in common with Marxism or with communism. And, I, and a lot of people, a lot of conservatives are very silly when they describe them as cultural Marxist or communist or even as left-wing because there's nothing left-wing about them in terms of the historical way that we understand what left-wing was all about. And I know some people, I know Andrew Dole, for example, in England has written a book called The New Puritans. Because yes, they are, they have certain uh, aspects to their lives that resemble that kind of narrow-minded puritanical outlook. But I'm not sure if that's a, that's fair to the Puritans either. Because the Puritans were okay, you know, puritanical, but they were quite adventurous. You know, they, they came to America, they, you know, living in the middle of nowhere and they were very pioneering in terms of their, uh, uh, their kind of orientation to the world. And I think that the, 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 the problem that you outline is, 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 is a difficult one. Uh, and the reason why it's difficult is because they themselves do not constitute a systematic movement. It's not as if they got a, a party line and nor is it that they have a, a clearly defined ideology. And although you, you know, you know in advance when you hear something, Are the different members, different members of identity groups, or different university professors are going to react to something? You can tell in advance what they're going to say. It's not because they've read uh, some ideological text that informs them of that. There's something else in the air. Now, in my second to last book, I call that an, an ideology without a name. And what I mean by that is that it has not yet coalesced into something. 
that's got a clearly defined ideological form. But what they have is an orientation and an attitude, uh, a kind of self-consciousness, whereby they know they're better you know, than other people. They're looking for ways of, of almost kind of uh, authorizing themselves as being somehow culturally distinct and culturally superior to the rest of society. And that's, that's something that is very much captured by the word they use in, in English, particularly in the United States. The, the expression they use is, we are raising awareness, that, that we are aware, you're not, and we are in a position to raise your awareness. And it's all, if you look at their language, they're all euphemistic. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting thing about the ruling class language in our culture. It's all about using, I don't know, in German it's probably very different, but in English it's things like, that's inappropriate. Now, inappropriate doesn't mean it's good or bad. You're always taking a stance. Or you say, that's problematic. You know, problematic, you know, what does that mean? It doesn't mean to say that I, I don't like it, it's bad. It just means you leave up in the air or, or in a, in uh, American and English universities, they say, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this. You know, now the word uncomfortable doesn't, you know, they're not really saying, I, I think this is really bad. You know, I don't like it. You know, shut up. You know, uncomfortable, you know, where I come from means that the chair I sit in is uncomfortable. You know, I don't like this chair. You know, it doesn't mean that you got this uh, intellectual or, or psychological resistance to what you're hearing. But the language they use is quite self-consciously euphemistic. And everything about their, their language and their outlook is almost like a, a bar of soap that goes right through your hands. That's really how they kind of perceive themselves. But at the same time, when push comes to shove, they can be extremely authoritarian. You mustn't say this. You know, you cannot do that. So I would say it's premature to give them an ideological name because they themselves haven't come to that point. I think it's only a matter of time before that will become, that will kind of coalesce together. And it's moving very fast in that direction. And, uh, you know, and, and they are all relatively new things in historical terms that give them legitimacy. And you mentioned environmentalism. I mean, environment was really an important development because it, 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 it pretends to uh, give uh, phenomenon a moral quality. You know, there's an expression in English called a green sin. You know, that it is wrong to fly on airplanes. It is wrong not to recycle. It is wrong to eat meat. It is wrong to have too many children. So it's, it's almost like they're developing a, a biblical set of, you know, kind of what you cannot do and uh, almost like a, a new a new commandment in the way that they're kind of going about it. But that's really still at a, at a, at a stage where that's fusing with all these other things. But they haven't fused yet. They're all running in parallel. But the one thing you know is that uh, if they hear you and me, their reaction isn't going to be, oh, it's interesting, or I'm not sure. They will react like this, you know, sort of, they will be harsh and firm and not prepared to discuss with us.
Yeah, it, it will. It will be from now on. I mean, you must be prepared for this. It's going to be the the controversial uh, uh, Professor Frank Ferretti. I think this is going to be like the new moniker that you're going to get. Everything will be the controversial uh, uh, philosopher, the controversial sociologist, going to part as you as you described it about the euphemisms. But maybe just to follow up on this a little bit. Um, Because you said, right, it's, it's about, it's, you know, people, oh, that's inappropriate. Uh, or, you know, or, or this makes me feel uncomfortable. And, and these are, I'm sometimes wondering, but isn't that a core element of this, right? That, that it's, uh, it's no longer about, about an ideology, a worldview, right? That constructed around whatever it might be, whether it's, it's flawed or not, but it's really about how do I feel about it, right? And, and we see this in other areas as well, right? It, it doesn't matter if you are, and again, this is something that makes many people uncomfortable. It's no longer about whether there is factually a biological male or a biological female. It's about, well, you might feel as a male or as a female, and you, you might feel as something in between, or you might feel one way on a Monday and one day on a Friday. Or another growing debate is, you know, can you be white and feel as black and identify as black? And I'm sure we're going to reach a point where, you know, I'm 40, where I can say I feel as 20. 29. And, you know, somebody will say, well, I mean, if, if he feels as 29, who are we to, to tell him otherwise? Isn't that kind of almost a, 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 a combination of, of this, what you said before, of a, a society that only lives in the present, right? Kind of, kind of, where the highest value is what I am in the here and now. I probably don't have children, so the future is cut off from me. Uh, I'm no longer... Uh, well read in history or taught in history. So the past is cut off from me. So if the only thing that's left for me is the present tense, well, isn't it then not almost by default that whatever I feel like when I get up in the morning, I, I ask society to, to kind of follow me along and indulge me in? Well, I mean, I think obviously uh, there is this powerful impulse towards uh, privileging psychology and uh, an emotionalism as a, a as a higher state than people who are who keep their opinion their kind of emotions to themselves or or who use uh, who, who kind of think that more objective knowledge you know sort of is is, is what's relevant and uh, you know and that what i call therapy culture is very powerful in that it encourages you know sort of what i call the it's all about me Outlook, you know, it's all about me. It's my narcissistic sentiments that should really prevail. But the interesting thing is, and this is why what we're discussing is actually quite complicated, is because you have two things running in parallel. You have this technocratic, administrative, bureaucratic uh, sort of sensibility, which pretends to be politically neutral. You know, it says the expert is always right. You know, follow the evidence. You know, science is what they have, have the last word. And you saw that with public health in the pandemic. So you've got that running in parallel. And at the same time, what you've got is almost like the opposite, where they say that, uh, you know, even mathematics is going to be decolonized, where they say that uh, emotionalism, how you feel, is more important uh, because. Uh, there are different ways of knowing, you know, different ways of understanding. You know, there is, uh, you know, a, a woman's form of understanding that's different than a male's form of understanding. And each is equally good. Uh, probably the feminist one is even better. You know, and that's why you have all these uh, 
uh, you know, sort of superstitious ideas about indigenous knowledge. And, you know, and, and what you got is this kind of highly subjective, you know, sort of emotional, you know, sort of psychological sensibility running aside the technocratic one. And, and, and despite the contradiction between them, the people, you know, sort of have become, it's become synthesized. And you see this most clearly in Silicon Valley in, in, in California where you have these technocrats, these uh, guys who run big tech companies, you know, who are hard capitalists when it comes to profit making. At the same time, you know, seeing more therapists than, uh, than you have dinners, you know, sort of, I mean, they just continually, you know, worried about their mental health, they worried about, you know, their state of emotion, they love Meghan and Harry, you know, sort of, and that synthesis occurs despite the fact that logically, we're talking about two very different ways, two different, very different perspectives on life. I mean, this sometimes uh, reminds me of, of something we talked about Marx a little bit, but this sometimes reminds me of, of the Austrian economist, uh, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, in, in a sense, right, that, that he made the argument that that the, the more successful the wealth creation through the capitalist system is, the more problematic it might becomes for, for, for those who most profit from it because there is then this, I mean, Max Weber said a similar thing, right? This, this, this emptiness of meaning. And, and as you, exactly as you just described, right? Kind of that, that you have all this, this fantastic wealth and influence, but apparently there seems to be some emptiness and, and, and it's, it's, I guess it's hard to, to fill it. And it comes back to also what you said. Isn't it then that, that, that I, I think one of the reasons why also maybe conservatives make the mistake that, you you cannot have an argument about let's say you no know, policy when when the purpose behind let's say is is as you described it an emotional one right if 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 it's if if something is is intended and, and that that exists on the right side as well i don't think this is a, this is exclusive to the left but if if you follow or believe in something not so much because you you necessarily believe it describes reality but it gives you meaning it fills you with something it gives you a purpose it's going to be very hard to argue with someone to get away from this because nobody wants to be, wants to live a life with, without meaning. And, and I think that the problem that I sometimes see is, and you described this as well, we have emptied out or, or whether deliberately or by accident destroyed all the old sources of meaning, right? The family, the nation, the church. I mean, in many ways, Nietzsche probably was correct, right? We've emptied all of this out. And, and now we, we, I feel we start to find out how difficult it is to 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 recreate or refill this emptiness in a certain way i forgot who it was uh, somebody once wrote that that in some ways the people of ukraine are probably emotionally healthier than many people in the west despite for whatever afflicts them they know what they stand for they know what they are fighting for and uh, i mean i would not want to trade places with anybody who's currently living and enduring what they have to endure in ukraine but I'm not sure if that perspective is entirely wrong, right? That there is a certain comfort in, in knowing who you are, in knowing what you, what you stand for. And it feels that despite all the fantastic economic wealth we have garnered in the West or in parts of the West, we have lost that, that, that element. Well, I think you're right about Schumpeter because he also said that as capitalism develops, it undermines the foundations on which it's built. And he basically saw that the moral foundations that lead to the rise of capitalism, 
suddenly become you know eroded and and can no longer provide le- the legitimation that capitalism will need uh, later on and there is a, a lot of truth in the fact that for some time now uh, not always but most of the time western societies have become subject to the crisis of meaning you know what does it mean to to be, to be what i'm doing now as far as i can tell the problem of meaning isn't just simply a question of of what nation i belong to or what community i am i think there was there was a time when you gained meaning from the fact that you were uh, an engineer or or you were a watchmaker or a printer that that job you did is what gave meaning to your experience and in the world that we live in we discourage people to gain their meanings from what they achieve instead in our society what gives them meaning is you know an accident of birth or their identity so people want to be recognized uh because they're lesbian or they want to be recognized because they are belong to a minority group and these are not accomplishments that you they can take responsibility for it's a biological or a, some kind of accident that you are that uh but the, you know what you should be getting meaning from amongst other things is what you achieved and we cannot really do that anymore partially because uh that kind of sensibility is also linked to the fact that you've got a kind of cultural and moral support about the rest of your life you know we you know you know where you've come from you know your origins you know you know the road that you began to travel on you know very clearly the values your parents grandparents have given you <clears throat> and uh, in that kind of context that is something that gives you a kind of stability in life if you haven't got that then you end up with what you have today which is a permanent identity crisis where you continually searching for new ways of finding an identity and and you're going around looking for that <coughs> all the time excuse me no no a big problem that definitely a very big problem I mean what you just said this is I think particularly uh when you mentioned kind of the value from from being a watchmaker from being an engineer I sometimes wonder um I mean this is an, in a in a way also the argument that Adam Smith made right and of course that also Karl Marx made I mean the, the big criticism that Marx made about the capitalist system is in the uh of course no is the alienation from the fruits of your labor right i mean this is what he criticizes that 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 you're no longer in command of of what what you create and which is an extension if you want of your identity of your soul so and precisely what you just said we have given up on this so i i sometimes wonder as a I mean it a little bit facetious but also uh, also sincere. I wonder these days if Marx wouldn't be if he would be reborn and with us right now if he wouldn't be a conservative in the 21st century. Well he would be and so would Lenin and so would Gramsci. Because for example if you look at their writings on education you know they were for very conservative forms of education. I mean, Marx was a, a big fan of classical education. When Gramsci was in prison, and his son was living in Sardinia, and uh, the son writes to Gramsci that 
he wants to uh, do engineering and he wants to, you know, sort of just study science and give up on uh, Latin, Greek. And Gramsci writes back and saying, you have to learn Latin and Greek. Otherwise, without Latin and Greek, you're not going to be able to amount to anything. I think there is that kind of, you know, they would have been very conservative about family life, about education, certainly. But then so would everybody, uh, you know, because anybody that had, uh, had real brain cells and was intelligent would have known that these were really quite important. You know, so, uh, and that's something that we forget is just how much intellectual life has changed and how it's become estranged from so many of the basic values of, of previous times. And I think that one of the things that the sociologist I find quite disturbing is that we become so uh, detached from taking meaning seriously that we don't give young people any meaningful signposts that tell them that they are making a transition from being a child to being an adult. You know, uh, historically, you got your uh, signpost by getting a, a driving license or getting an apprenticeship or a job for life. I mean, these would be all indications that you weren't a child anymore or you joined the army or you got married and you had children. So none of those things are particularly strong anymore. I, I just read recently that in America, the number of adults living on their own is just rising and rising and rising. And very clearly, they're having no children. They're not living with anybody. They haven't got a you know a close, intimate connection with anybody. And they behave like children. I mean, when I go to America, that's the most extreme example. And I meet guys who are in their middle 30s. They really strike me as bio biologically mature children rather than as real men or as real women. You know, there's a kind of uh, self-inflicted infantilization, partially because there hasn't been that kind of process of giving them those meaningful signs that kind of tells them the distinction between being a, a child and being an adult. So do you think the, the government could play, or the state could play a role in kind of creating the conditions again, kind of to, to give this, this guideposts to kind of, to, to, to create the, the, the conditions for, I would say, us to be more grown up again, or to create the conditions for growing up? In part. I mean, uh, the only thing that I can think of that a government can do, and I'm thinking of Britain where I live, maybe also in Austria, I don't know, is to reintroduce uh, uh, a kind of uh, national service where young men and young women have got to join the army or something like that so that they, you know, they learn uh, the importance of responsibility and duty and all these things. That could be one way. I know it sounds weird, but I think that could be really quite important. I'm always impressed when you go to Israel where, you know, people go in the army and, and when they leave the army, they become friends for life. Mm. The people that used to ha hang out with and that becomes an important, almost like a community that you've kind of created. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is something that I think is really quite important. Something that Max Weber wrote about during the First World War. But I, in the end, I don't think governments can solve the problem because I think the problem is cultural and it does require a cultural revolution 
where we uh, developed the the uh, a kind of a situation where we do culturally socialize young people in a different way than we're doing at the moment, and where we basically make relevant those cultural norms that we think are going to support a system of meaning uh, for, for our lives. I mean, this is a, I think this is a great segue into my, my final question. Now, if you would recommend, you know, either from an author of the past or a contemporary, uh, author, uh, one book or two books to your students and, and to, uh, to our listeners, apart from your own, of course, which I, which I recommend to everyone, uh, listening to this. They are really, uh, particularly over the last one. I highly also, also, I forgot to mention, uh, everyone should subscribe, uh, to, uh, Frank Freddy's Substack. You find it under Frank Freddy's Substack, so it's very easy to find, uh, which also highly recommend. There is uh, always very interesting and insightful essays, particularly on contemporary issues. So this is something really a, a must uh, subscription for everybody who's uh, who's uh, on Substack. But is there anything particular that you would recommend or that you find or in, in your career that has been a very, very influential piece of work that uh, that you would like others to read as well? Well, I read a lot of things in my life, but the uh, the author that I read uh, I think too late in my life, I wish I had uh, come across him much, much earlier, uh, was Christopher Lash, because it, it was almost like accidental that I kind of bumped into him. I don't know how that happened. But I remember reading him and for the first time being, uh, uh, just feeling a companionship with the way he was describing things. Uh, and Because he was dealing with issues that were parallel to my, my own concerns. But he expressed them with a far greater clarity than I've seen anybody express that. So I always recommend all of his books to everybody. I think they are, are really, you know, sort of quite important. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the main guy that I would think. Other than that, there are so many interesting authors out there. Uh, I know, sort of, you could never have too many interesting uh, and important authors because that, sometimes it's even good to read books that, you don't really agree with that make you angry, but you kind of learn from, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think that's very important for me. I should also mention the, uh, the great influence that Hannah Arendt has, has had on me in terms of her writings. I think particularly her shorter essays, you know, sort of on thing, on issues like what is education? You know, what is, uh, what is the past? I mean, all these, her essays have been so good. And she's got, uh, you know, you can't really say that she, she's left or right or she's this or that. But she just flies with her ideas. And uh, sometimes, you know, she gets on my nerves because she becomes a little bit too obtuse. But then you realize it was worth reading her because there's something really positive comes out of it. All right. Well, Professor Frank Freddy, thank you so much for being on with us. I hope we can do this uh, again in the future and uh, all the greatest of success for your future work. And we make sure to observe it very, very closely. Pleasure. Nice talking to you. Thank you.